Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Learner's Corner Podcast. This is a podcast for lifelong learners where we learn from anything and everything. My name is Caleb Mason. My name is not Caleb Mason. It's Todd Hicksonball, a.k.a. the Todd Father. And we have a great episode for you today. Today we are talking with Chris Gay, who... Do you know about Chris, Todd? Well, I don't know about him because I've not met him because actually you interviewed him for this episode. But I know that... Yes. He wrote this book. <clears throat> yes, you you miss out because we talked with him about a book that he recently co-authored with Reed Hoffman. Do you know who Reed Hoffman is? Masters of Scale. Yes, called Blitz Scaling, and it's all about how do you scale whatever you're doing as quickly as possible. I love the subtitle of it. It's, it's the lightning fast path to building massively valuable companies. And we we get into um, a lot of nitty gritty stuff. We also talk about what does this look what does this look like for a nonprofit as well? How do you how do you blitz scale as a nonprofit? Because that could be challenging as well. But no, Chris is a really great guy, and we had a, a phenomenal conversation about how to scale really fast. But before we get into that conversation, we have our Learner's Corner Recommended Resource of the Week. ba da ba 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 First one of 2019. You know, me doing the, the, the sound effect, not the resource of the week. You get what I'm saying. All right. The yeah, resource. I, I was wondering where the sound effect had been the past few weeks. Well, you know, I put it on the shelf for a little bit because I can't break it out every week. But- because then you let's, let's be let's be honest, Todd. You forgot. All right, I forgot. But that's fine. Don't <laughs> at me. Don't at Here, me. What's our resource? Give us give us your resource. Yeah. So I finished just uh, a couple weeks ago listening to this book on Audible. Which, by the way, if you guys aren't using Audible and Blinkist, you should be. Um, it's called Back to Human. How Great Leaders Create Connection in the Age of Isolation. It's by a guy named Dan, I think his, I think he pronounced his last name Shabble. It's Dan, like Dan rhymes with man. And then S-C-H-A-W-B-E-L. Um, great book, loved it. Talks a lot about how to create culture and how to create connection within the workplace. Loved it. What's, what's one takeaway? from it for you. Not every person in your office needs the same thing that you need. And Ooh. so as the leader, you need to figure out how can I create environments? How can I create points in the day? How can I help the other people that I'm in charge of that are in the office with me? How can I help them and give them the things that they need, whether that's through through their environment, emotionally? How can I prepare and create things that create moments and create um, uh, a place where everybody is getting the things that they need to be able to, to enjoy work and have success and to win at work. Awesome. Boom. Well, that was our Learner's Corner Recommended Resource of the Week. And here is our con- Actually, here is my conversation. Oh, stop it. Well, Chris, we are so excited to have you on the Learner's Corner podcast today. 
It is a pleasure to be here, Caleb. Thank you so much for having me on. You know, you, you've recently come out with a book that you've co-authored with Reid Hoffman, and it's called Blitz Scaling. And so just as we're kind of getting started, um, how did this idea of blitz scaling come to be? Well, the story really begins back around 2015. And here in Silicon Valley, 2015 was sort of when the unicorn era really began. That's, this was when all these startups were springing up, becoming very big very quickly. And people began asking the question, well, what's driving this? How are these companies doing this? And people were asking Reed this question. People were asking other people this question. And what we found is that when folks were answering the question, they really didn't give good, solid answers. They would say things like, well, you know, it's happening in Silicon Valley because this is a great place to start a company or because there are these great research universities or because there's a lot of money around. And those are all true statements, but they are not unique statements. There's all sorts of great places where you can start a company. There's all sorts of great cities where there are research universities and lots of money available. And so we found the conventional answers that people gave unsatisfying. So we decided we would try to dig deeper. We taught a class at Stanford that fall where we brought in people like Brian Chesky and Mariam Nafisi and Eric Schmidt and so on to talk about their experiences. And based on that, we began really developing this concept of blitz scaling, which we felt was the missing ingredient, the thing that was happening without people being aware of it. Mm -hmm. So I want to ask you a little bit about the class. Um, but before we get into that, can you, can you just kind of define what blitz scaling is? Sure. So what blitz scaling is, is we define it as the pursuit of rapid growth by prioritizing speed over efficiency in an environment of uncertainty. And the reason it is difficult for people to grasp blitz scaling is because it goes so contrary to regular expectations around how businesses should be run. Every business wants to grow. Nobody wants to stagnate and die. But very few businesses will prioritize speed over efficiency. You can think of it as a continuation of the ideas of the lean startup. With the lean startup, the concept is maximize the speed of learning. And that's at an earlier stage of the company. If you have found your product market fit, if you've discovered that there's an opportunity there, then you need to blitz scale where you're now prioritizing the speed to scale. Mm -hmm. So I want to go back to the, the class that you taught at Stanford. What was something that you learned in that class that was maybe it wasn't conventional wisdom? So there was something that very interesting that came out of the class. And a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of founders, people are concerned with how do they maintain the culture of their company. And we found there was one magic number that came up multiple times. And this was very puzzling to us, but eventually we just concluded apparently this number actually works. So it turns out that for many successful companies, be they a Google, an Airbnb, a Workday, what happens is the founders are involved in every employee hire up through employee 500. Mm -hmm. uh, we call this the rule of 500. And 
this is a little unusual because you know a 500 person company is actually pretty big and you wouldn't necessarily expect the founders to be involved but the companies that maintain strong cultures the founders really create that imprint for that first 500 employees and those first 500 employees then represent a critical mass and as they're bringing on new employees they've all understood this is what this company's culture is all about and they're able to find people who fit with or add to the culture mm -hmm. what is What's one of your favorite stories of blitzscaling that you've heard in the class, in the Stanford class? So one of my favorite stories of blitzscaling actually comes from the company Dropbox. You may very well be a customer or user of Dropbox. Most people are at this mm -hmm. point. Uh, have you ever used Dropbox yourself? I do. We use it for the podcast all the time for dropping audio files and sharing those. And one of the great things about Dropbox is it's so simple and easy to use. Mm -hmm. Now, here's the funny thing. Dropbox didn't start off as simple and easy to use. So one of the stories we have in the book comes from Drew Houston. And when Dropbox first launched, it was announced in TechCrunch and people were flooding in and 100,000 people signed up for Dropbox in the first week or something like that. What most people don't know is that it looked like it was gonna be an enormous failure because people were coming in, signing up for Dropbox and a tiny fraction of them ever actually got around to uploading a file or connecting it up with their computer. And they said, what's going on here? And so what Drew and his team did is they decided to conduct usability testing, very simple usability testing or focus groups. They got people off of Craigslist, brought them into the Dropbox office and said, hey, here's an email that is from Dropbox and here are some files that you wanna upload. Go ahead and do it while we watch. And they did a bunch of these tests in a single day and at the end of the day, what they discovered is not a single user had been able to actually accomplish the task. And in the book, we quote Drew Housen as saying, my God, we have built the single worst product in history. <laughs> now, that's very dispiriting, right? You've oh, got yeah. this huge launch. You have hundreds of thousands of people streaming in, and none of them are worth anything because your product apparently sucks. And so what they had to do is to really put an enormous focus on the usability. And they took all the things they found in the tests, every single place where people stumbled or were uncertain, and they put them in this gigantic Excel spreadsheet. And they had something like 100 rows to this spreadsheet, 100 different problems with Dropbox. And they said, well, we're just going to have to knock them down as quickly as we can. We're going to focus on nothing but killing off these problems. And when they finished working on all those rows of the spreadsheet, Dropbox's uh, rate of success went from something like 20% to something like 60%. So they were able to triple the rate at which people were successfully using Dropbox through this concentrated effort. And I love that story because a lot of people think, they look at the products that we have today and say, wow, this product is amazing. This must always have been amazing. And the answer is no. Sometimes there's a lot of hard work behind it. Mm -hmm. How... What advice would you give to the person who, you know, maybe maybe they just had something like like Dropbox where they have they have their product and it just went through a massive failure? How how do you determine whether or not it's worth pursuing again or continuing to pursue or, you know, I'm just going to leave this behind and start all over again? And this is one of those hardest things to do in the startup world, which is how do you know when to keep going? How do you know when to pivot and how do you know when to give up? because every story of a successful company is we never gave up. Mm -hmm. But every story of an unsuccessful company is we never gave up and then we ran out of money. So yeah. you know, which one is it? 
Yep. And what Reed and I say is that the core comes down to what is your thesis about this company, about the market, and do you still believe it? So, for example, the thesis with Dropbox was people want to be able to access their files from everywhere, especially now that they have mobile devices and people are not necessarily tied to a single desktop computer. And so when Drew Houston ran into these horrible problems, he could sit down and ask himself, okay, is my thesis still correct? Do people still want this? And if the answer is yes, and the, then, the, then the response is, well, I guess our product just isn't good enough yet. Do we see a path to actually getting it there? And if the answer to both those questions is yes, you keep going. If on the other hand, the answer to the first question, yes, there's a need, but no, I don't see how this product can get us there then the question becomes, okay, is there a different product that we should make? Should we pivot in a different direction in order to make this happen? And if you don't believe in your thesis at all, that, or if you don't believe there's any way to get to the point where you have a viable product, then maybe it is time to give up. But there are so many cases where companies started off and became something completely different in the end. In the startup world, Slack, for example, began as, began as a video game and turned into the company that it is today. But even in the regular world, the old-fashioned industrial world, Nokia began as a paper mill. Nintendo began as a playing card company. So more often than not, what you start off with on day one is not what you're going to end up being successful with on day 1,000. Mm -hmm. So have you just seen in your research and just like talking with Reed and talking with other people, what are the maybe the key steps that help someone make a successful pivot? Absolutely. So when it comes to making a successful pivot, the reason they call it a pivot as opposed to just completely trying something new is, is there something about our current set of assets and expertise that lend themselves to this new pivot? So in the case of Slack, for example, the product Slack actually grew out of the company's own internal use of IRC, basically chat channels, for running the company. And they said, wow, you know, this IRC modification that we built for ourselves really seems to be interesting. We really use it a lot. Maybe other people would use it. And so they're drawing on an existing asset or experience. I was reading an interview, not one that I conducted, but an interview with Andy Jassy, who is the CEO of Amazon Web Services. And he talked about the early days when they were considering Amazon Web Services. And that was the same thing. They said, we need this kind of service. It would make our life a lot easier. And we have a lot of expertise in running servers at this point from running Amazon.com. This seems like something we can get into. So it's all about really being self-aware and having a good understanding of your own assets and experiences. And based on that, then pivoting. If you, for example, say, we're going to pivot into being a world-class fine dining restaurant and none of us have ever cooked before. And in fact, we always eat all of our meals at McDonald's. I'm going to say, you know what? I'm not sure that's going to work for you guys. Mm -hmm. So... This this idea, this concept of blitz scaling, it's a little bit um, unconventional. You know, most some people would say um, that it's just it's a little bit risky. Why why is blitz scaling sometimes a better option than going the traditional like business growth plan though? So the key is the rise of the internet. 
So we're now living in our third decade of the internet era, because I really consider the internet era as beginning in 1995 when Netscape IPO'd. And we are now in our third decade of the internet, and it's essentially changed everything. I don't actually know how old you are, Caleb. What year were you born? I was born in 91. 1991. So I want you to picture what life was like for your parents. There was no email. Mm -hmm. There was no web. If you wanted to find something, you went to a paper phone book and looked it up. If you wanted to get information, you went to a library, went through a card catalog, and dug out microfilm to look at it. All these names, all these terms mean nothing to most of your <laughs> listeners because it was so long ago. Mm -hmm. But that literally is the world that we had. Most people had no awareness of what was going on outside their hometown other than what they saw on television news. The world has completely changed. Mm -hmm. We are now connected with people all over the world. If you're a gamer playing a game like Fortnite, you might be playing with people from 27 different countries every single night. And that's something that could never have happened before the internet. And what the internet has done by connecting everyone together and making these markets global is it has tended to create more and more winner-take-most and winner-take-all markets. And we call these in the book Glengarry Glen Ross markets after the old movie Glengarry Glen Ross in which a young, thin Alec Baldwin gives a speech to a bunch of salespeople saying first prize is a Cadillac, second prize is a set of steak knives, and third prize is you're fired. Mm -hmm. And these Glenn, Gary, Glenn Ross markets reward the winner disproportionately. And so who is going to be the winner? In most cases, it's going to be the first person to achieve critical scale. And if you achieve critical scale, that allows things like network effects to kick in that, meet, that keep you as the dominant player. And so what that means is if you're in one of these Glenn, Gary, Glenn Ross markets, then the most important thing you can possibly do is to be the first person to scale. Because it doesn't matter how efficient you were. If you are super duper efficient, but you're the second or third person to reach critical scale, it's over. You've already lost the game. And so these Glengarry Glen Ross markets create the need for speed, and the need for speed creates the need for blitz scaling. Yeah, and that's really one of, and that's really one of the concepts that really stood out to me as I was reading through the book, is just this idea of first mover advantage. Can you talk a little bit more about that and uh, expand on it a little bit? Absolutely. And what's interesting is it's not necessarily first mover advantage. It's first scaler advantage. First movers sometimes become the first to scale, but other times they don't. The key factor here is that there are these market dynamics that tend to create lasting, enduring market leaders. The most important of those is probably network effects. And the way I explain network effects is I say, well, let's take a look at a company like eBay, which has been around since the mid-1990s. eBay is still a dominant player in e-commerce today, especially for small businesses. You've probably bought something off of eBay at some point in time, Caleb. Yep. So during the entire time you've been using eBay, how much would you say the website has changed? Uh, I, it's been a while since I've used eBay. <laughs> so, but not a lot. No, it hasn't really changed. Uh, have a lot. you ever, have you ever used Craigslist, like to find an apartment or something? Actually, no, not really. I haven't had to. Ah, well, both eBay and Craigslist are great examples of network effects companies where essentially they haven't changed their product in twenty years. Mm -hmm. And in the case of Craigslist, they haven't even changed their website. Mm 
And the reason that they are still able to stay on top, beside, be, despite the fact that they are not investing in the product, is the fact that these market dynamics are so incredibly strong. And so that is an example of first scalar advantage. And eBay, for example, achieved first scalar advantage and actually fended off direct frontal assaults by Amazon and Yahoo. Both Amazon and Yahoo tried to create their own auction sites to compete with eBay, and both of them failed, despite being these hugely powerful companies at the time. Mm -hmm. And it's because the market forces are so powerful that once you become the first to scale, you have that enduring market leadership. Yeah. Have you done any research on how how this applies to to nonprofits, or does it does it differ at all? So it absolutely differs in a couple of important respects, but you can still use a lot of these ideas. Mm -hmm. So the big difference for nonprofits is when it comes to nonprofits, you're looking to maximize your impact, but you're not always as concerned about there being competition. If, for example, you have a cause, you want to end homelessness, and you decide, I'm going to end homelessness in my city, and then other people in other cities pick up on it and say, we want to be like that organization and actually emulate them. You don't say, oh, my God, those guys are coming for my market share. I got to fight them off. Yeah. You say, wow, let me help you out. And that's sort of one of the differences. But you can still apply the principles of blitzscaling because when you are a nonprofit, you are trying to have impact as quickly as possible. Every day you are not at scale. Those are people who are suffering and not getting benefit as a result of it. And one of the examples we use in the book is Dress for Success, which really taps into those dynamics we talked about. Dress for Success, which was started by Nancy Lublin, is a nonprofit that helps women who are from poor backgrounds or disadvantaged backgrounds by giving them clothing for job interviews so they can dress professionally. And they also get some additional training and things like that as well. Well, Dress for Success is a nonprofit. They didn't have a lot of money and they wanted to scale up their impact. Couldn't figure out what to do until Nancy said, you know what? This is not about market share. We're going to franchise this. We're going to find people out there who are interested in bringing this to their city and they're going to come to my they're going to come to New York City, which is where she was living and where they were based. They're going to stay on a futon in my apartment. And I'm going to show them how to create their own dress for success chapter in their city. And because it's not about equity and stock and getting rich, she's able to do that. And she recruited, I think, something like 70 different people to help expand dress for success just by doing this. And that was the way that she blitz scaled. And it wasn't a way that would necessarily work for a for-profit company because you would say, oh, my God, I'm giving away my market share. But it's something that does work for a nonprofit company. Yeah. What would be some key indicators that would reveal, okay, it's, it's time for us to blitz scale and we're ready to blitz scale? Yep. So what we have in the book is we outline a set of growth factors and growth limiters that allow you to judge the blitz scalability of your company or organization. The first is the market size. There has to be a big market because obviously blitz scaling is all about this rapid growth. You need a lot of headroom. Mm -hmm. The second is distribution because it turns out having a great product is not enough. That's one of the things that people often get obsessed with in the startup world. They're like, we're going to build a killer product. I'm like, yes, build a killer product. That's great. But make sure you figure out how that product is going to get in people's hands because a lot of the dynamics around critical scale and being the first to scale only happen if you are able to get the product in people's hands. And a good product with great distribution will usually beat a great product with only good distribution. 
Third, gross margins. You need to be able to generate enough cash to actually fund the growth. And you also need to have this big reward to make taking all this risk worthwhile. And the fourth are the network effects that I previously discussed. We also have these two growth limiters that can prevent you from growing. One is operational scalability. So from an operational scalability standpoint, you have to be thinking about, okay, you know, can I actually scale this up? If this is a service that requires one-on-one -on -one interaction, it's very difficult to scale, which is why classically speaking, consulting companies have a difficult time blitz scaling. It's because it is ultimately a number of bodies as opposed to something that is infinitely scalable like software. And the final thing is product market fit or the lack thereof. So product market fit is the concept from the lean startup, which is saying, have you got the product to a point where it solves a real need for the customers and the customers want more of it and they continue using it over time? And the example I always use here is Groupon, which is a company that lacked product market fit. Whenever I give a talk, I always ask people, how many people here have ever used Groupon? Caleb, have you ever used Groupon? I have. When's the last time you used Groupon? Uh, probably like six months ago. And do you use Groupon on a regular basis? <laughs> no, I do not. Now, when you first heard about Groupon, you're like, oh my God, this is incredible. Let me get in, let me get these deals, let me get these emails. And then over time, you're like, actually, this kind of sucks. Yeah. And Groupon is one of those things where occasionally something is good enough that it overcomes the suckage. Mm -hmm. But that suckage is that lack of product market fit. It's not something that works for you as a consumer. And as it turns out, it doesn't work for the merchants either because mm -hmm. the people who are occasionally motivated to use a Groupon only do so because they're a cheapskate and never come back again. So it's a product <laughs> that doesn't work for either side. So product market fit is still essential. It doesn't guarantee success, but a lack of it will guarantee failure. So with all those different elements of blitz scalability, you can sort of judge your company and say, does it look like we're blitz scalable? You don't have to be a 10 out of 10 on all of them. But if you have a couple of things where it's like, oh, it turns out we have zero network effects and there's no benefit to being the first to scale. Blitz scaling probably isn't appropriate. Or we haven't found our product market fit yet and people stop using our product after three days. Guess what? Adding more users <laughs> is not going to help that problem. But the final factor is really competition. As we mentioned, it's a race to be the first to scale. If you're running a race with no competition, it's probably okay to go at a pace that feels comfortable. But if you're trying to outrun a bunch of other competitors, guess what? The person who's willing to, uh, who's willing to endure the discomfort and sprint all out is going to be the one that makes it to the finish line first. Mm -hmm. What have you seen... Uh, are a couple of things or one or two things that whenever people are looking to scale that they overlook or underestimate how difficult it's going to be? So one of the things that we like to point out to people is that a company, as it scales, transforms pretty radically on a regular basis. So in the book, we lay out this framework that says that there are these five different stages of blitz scaling based on the size of the organization. The first stage is the family where there are basically single digit employees and everyone's in the same room and working together. The next stage is the tribe. Now you get into the double digit. There may be tens of employees. The next stage after that is the village. There may be hundreds and then city with thousands and nations with tens of thousands of employees. And the point is that 
each stage is actually radically different than the previous stage. A five-person company is totally different from a 50-person company and it is totally different from a 500-person company. Mm -hmm. And far too often, people just look for the first stage and they say, wow, I just want to get a great product out there and then people are going to start buying it and then it's going to be easy from then on out. And that's a misconception. In fact, handling success and handling the strain of growth is just as important. And there are plenty of companies that we've seen, plenty of companies that you could probably think of that blew apart because they did a bad job of managing that growth, despite the fact that they had a great product and they were selling like hotcakes. Mm -hmm. What would you say is maybe one behavior, one thing that the person that the leader could do in each of those stages to lead well and to manage that growth? So the most important thing for the leader is to understand that things are changing rapidly, and that means they need to become what we call an infinite learner. Mm -hmm. So to begin with, most of the companies that are blitzscaling are companies that have done something other people haven't done before. So they're breaking new ground. And when you're breaking new ground, by definition, you don't necessarily have somebody else's playbook to work off of. You have to be able to learn everything about the industry. Uh, so for example, back when I was getting started on the internet, Java was new, it was like a year old. We would joke about the fact that people would put these advertisements in the newspapers saying, Java programmers wanted at least 10 years of experience required. You can't get experienced people for something that has never been done before. Yeah. And so as a leader, you need to be able to learn from different examples, apply techniques from other fields to your field, and just continually learn from the feedback of the marketplace. And so the most important thing is for the leader to understand they can never stop learning. Right? Mm -hmm. They can't sort of say, well, this is what allowed us to succeed to this point, so therefore we're going to keep doing that. Instead, they have to say, I'm always on the lookout. Like Andy Grove said, only the paranoid survive. Mm -hmm. I'm out there looking for signs that what we've done till now is no longer working and that we got to find new things. And my job is to learn those new skills so that I don't become a bottleneck to this company. So I want to go back to something that you said earlier in the, venue, in the interview because it's just been uh, bugging me since you've said it. You talked about how um, – for in the Stanford class, how most of the, the CEOs um, were involved in the interviewing and the hiring of people until there was 500 employees. Why, why, why did they say that they did that? And like, why, why 500? Like, why is 500 the limit? So I don't know why 500 is the limit. I suspect it's simply a question of how much time people can take out of their day mm -hmm. in order to do this. Because at a certain point, like when you get to 500 employees, that implies a certain hiring rate. Let's say you're you're doubling in size every year, and at 500 employee at 500 employees, you're probably hiring close to one person a day. You get much past one person a day, you just don't have time to meet with everyone and still do any real work. Mm -hmm. So I think that that may be an upper bound as opposed to that's the point at which you know you've already managed to to inculcate everything. But I think the key here lies in something that we heard from Anil Boussri, who is the founder and co-founder and CEO of Workday, so the very successful enterprise software company. And what he said was, when we were hiring people, we tried to think, it's not just I'm sitting across from this one person that I'm looking to hire right now. I'm sitting across from this person plus the other hundred people they're going to have influence over hiring in the future. So when you're sitting 
in the chair and you're interviewing someone, you're not interviewing for one hire, you're interviewing for a hundred hires. Wow. And that really increases the stakes of making sure this person is the right fit. And at the early stages of the company, the best person to figure that out is in fact the founder or co-founder. Wow, that's a radical mind shift. Yeah. <laughs> and again, yeah. It, it's, it's because these companies are doubling or tripling in size every year. Every new person by the end of the year, hired at the beginning of the year, by the end of the year is an old hand. And they're going to be some of the core people who are involved in hiring. So you have to really hire people whom you're confident are going to carry the torch and hire people that you would have hired. Mm-hmm. So I know that you do a lot of work with startups. And so just as I'm, I would be remiss if I didn't ask this, what are some key indicators that you look for when evaluating startups? And obviously it's not... Um, you're not going to be able to predict with 100% accuracy every time that this startup is going to work, this one's going to fail. But what are some things that you look at whenever evaluating startups? So obviously, we would look at blitz scalability mm-hmm. and look at those growth factors and growth limiters. But there are some specific things that I look for that are the leading indicators of those. Because you know usually it's not so clean and convenient. They come to you and there's a report written out like a Harvard Business School case listing all the factors. So the first thing that I look for is, do the people who try the product keep using it? Intensity of usage is so important. There are very few incredibly valuable products where they don't have intense usage. You can think of products like insurance. There are counterexamples. It's not like you think about your insurance every day. But for the most part, the successful companies are the ones where the product is used all the time. Google. You use Google how many times a day? Goodness only knows. Apple. How many times a day do you look at your iPhone? Facebook. How many times a day do you tap into your social network? And so on and so forth. So that intensity of usage is one of those things I would really encourage people to look at very strongly. The other thing I would say, and this is a little counterintuitive, is when you're looking at the team, you're trying to figure out, do you have people who are infinite learners? In other words, it's not about what skills do they have today, right? Oftentimes people evaluate the talent of a company and they say, wow, this person did this, this person did this, they have this relevant experience. Fantastic, I like relevant experience as well. But I know that if the company is successful, We're going to need a leader who is an infinite learner, who's going to continue to cycle and learn new things. So I actually would not want to see someone who'd spent their entire career in a single industry working on a single function. I'd want to see someone who'd prove the ability to learn very different areas because as this company grows, they're going to have to continue learning. So how how do you determine whether or not someone is an infinite learner? Like, what do you look for? I mean, you talked about one of they have various experiences. Is there anything else that you look for? So one of the things that we'll ask is, so tell me about something you learned recently or what are you learning about right now? And to some extent, you could say, well, it's a little unfair. Not everyone is good at articulating what they're learning. And to which our response is, well, guess what? If you can't articulate what you're learning, you're not going to be able to spread that learning to the rest of the organization. So being able to articulate the learning is actually a part of being an infinite learner. And so if somebody can articulate to me, 
here's what I'm thinking about right now. Here's what I'm interested in right now. Here's what I'm trying to learn right now. Here's how I'm trying to learn it. Then I know, okay, this person is probably an infinite learner. An infinite learner. Mm-hmm. So Chris, just as we're getting ready to wrap up, we always have a few questions um, about learning that we love to ask all of our guests. And the first one is, what's one thing that is helping you either personally or professionally right now? So I think that one of the things that helps everyone, and especially me in this case, is having a broad network of people that you call upon and being very clear about what kind of help you wanna get. So right now, we're working on this book. I'm trying to help spread the ideas of the book. And so as I meet with my friends of all different backgrounds, I'm telling them, hey, here's what I'm working on. Here are the things I think I'm trying to do do you know anybody? Do you have any techniques? Do you have any advice that you can share with me? And it's my opinion, you can never talk with enough smart, interesting people. And it doesn't matter if they have direct experience with what you're trying to do, they may know someone. So for example, direct experience, I was talking with somebody who is a vice chairman of one of the big consulting companies because I wanted to, in fact, get the big Fortune 500 companies to adopt the ideas of blitzscaling. And he, of course, has great connections in that world, but he also had valuable insight. And he said, listen, you know, the big thing you're going to have to overcome if you want to have a long-term impact is the organizational dynamics and understanding things like if you have an innovation initiative, it shouldn't come out of the quarterly operating budgets of the business units. It should come out of the capital budget at the board level because you need to be able to have a longer-term commitment. I'm like, wow. That's the sort of thing that since I've never worked in a Fortune 500 company as an executive, I never would have known. Mm-hmm. So I love getting that kind of learning from people. Other folks may introduce you know, the, a friend, a relative, an ex-boyfriend or girlfriend. Who knows? All these serendipitous connections tend to produce powerful effects. What advice would you give to someone who is eager to learn? So I think one of the things I recommend to people who want to learn is to understand how they learn best. So we live in a world where people tend to gravitate towards certain types of learning just because that's what we're used to, right? So people like to read books. I love reading books. I'm an author. I'm glad people (laughs) love to read books. But different people learn in different ways. Not everyone is a great learn from books kind of people person. And so I like to know, are you the kind of person who learns from books? Are you the kind of person who just experiments and tries things? Are you the kind of person that wants to take a structured class? Or are you the person who seeks out a mentor? Understanding the way that you learn best and then structuring your learning around that knowledge is one of the best ways to increase your rate of learning. If you could have everyone learn one thing, what would it be? The one thing that I would like everyone to learn is the ability to be self-aware. I think that there are so many things in life where we are tempted to think about ourselves in ways that are not realistic. I think that there's all these famous studies that show that 85% of people believe they're above average in any given thing. (laughs) And you know what? That optimism is great. Optimism is actually very adaptive. Optimists are better than pessimists at most things in life. They get better outcomes. It turns out, of course, that pessimists are more realistic. And so self-awareness is how you get the benefits of pessimism while combining it with the benefits of optimism. And if you're self-aware, you know what you're good at, what you're not. You know what you know a lot about and what you know a little about. And you don't feel the need to pretend to be something you aren't. I think you're going to be a much better learner. 
are there any tools or techniques that has helped you become more self-aware? So I think from a self-awareness perspective, there are a couple things I like to do. The main thing is actually just what we're doing right now, having conversations with other people and trying to have conversations with people that you trust. So when you trust people, you're willing to say things that you wouldn't necessarily say to the world at large. And the things that you're willing to say, the weaknesses that you're willing to admit, those are things that once you say them out loud, you have a much better understanding of them. So having people in your life whom you trust, whom you're willing to be vulnerable with, is one of the great ways to learn to be self-aware. And then finally, what are you learning right now? So the topic that I'm really focused on right now, and you heard me discuss it earlier, mm -hmm. is just understanding how change happens at these big Fortune 500 companies. And I've been talking with various folks from that world, including like the chairman and CEO of some of the world's largest companies. And I'm just trying to learn more and more about their world. I've spent my entire life in the startup world and it's new to me. And that is both frightening and exciting. It's frightening because there are all these landmines that I might step on, which is why I talk with people like the vice chairman of one of the big four consulting firms. But it's also exciting because I think that in addition to being an infinite learner, it's good to be a joyful learner. Do you enjoy learning new things? If you enjoy learning new things, then you're going to do a lot of it. And I'm the kind of person who just likes learning new things regardless of the topic <laughs> and regardless of whether or not it's useful. What's, uh, and I mean, you, you talked about one of the things that you, that you learned specifically from those conversations and that research. Is there anything else or anything that's been surprising to you so far in your research about um, Fortune 500 companies and them changing? So the, I learned something recently from my friend Adam Grant's book, Originals. And Adam Grant, of course, is a professor at Wharton, best-selling author, incredible, incredible thinker, mm -hmm. also one of the most generous people you could ever meet. And I've been listening to his book on audio because that's how I do a lot of my reading when I'm driving around. And one of the very interesting things he said in his book was that status and power are two different things. And the key with power is power can be granted, but status has to be earned. And that in organizations, a lot of the times that people run into resistance is when they attempt to exert power before they have earned that status. And I'm like, wow, that's an interesting insight. Mm -hmm. And that's the sort of insight I'd love to share. And fortunately, I came on your show today and I was able to share it with your readership. Yep. Well, Chris, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. If people want to continue to learn from you, find the book Blitzscaling, where's the best place for them to go to do those things? So to learn more about Blitzscaling, you can just go to blitzscaling.com and you'll get information about the book and you'll get pointers on where to buy it. If you like hearing from me, you can certainly follow me on Twitter. It's just at Chris Yeh, C-H-R-I-S-Y-E-H. And I'm just always looking forward to hearing from folks. I love being a guest on shows like this. And if there's anyone else, Caleb, that you think I should talk with, let me know. Great. Sounds good. Will do. Lots, Lots of takeaways from this conversation. conversation. Too many to really get into. So here's all I'm going to say. I'm going to I'm going to give you an additional. Um, and, and in fact, it's not it's not really a new one because we've talked about this many times. Yeah, we've talked before. about this podcast before, definitely. But if you want to get into more detail about this conversation, check out the Masters of Scale podcast, which is um, a lot of the takeaways from the book and um, and from our conversation with Chris as well. Yeah, great podcast. 
Um, you'll, now, you'll fall in love with it. Todd, uh, we have another treat for our listeners this week. We are dropping another podcast later this week. Yay, that means that Todd got to edit two podcasts for one week. But you're going to enjoy it, because you, know you know who we're talking with? Who? Francesca Gino. Oh, I love her. What are you I talking know. to her she, about again? She, oh, she wrote a book called Rebel Talent, Why It Pays to Break the Rules of Work and in Life. And Todd, I think you definitely need to listen to this, because you break a lot of rules. I, I like breaking rules. <laughs> I break rules all the time. Hey, my, my philosophy that I live life by is I would rather ask for forgiveness than permission. <laughs> Some, sometimes that might be a good thing to live by. Anyway, the best way to make sure you don't miss this conversation or any of our future conversations is by subscribing to our podcast and whatever podcast player you use. You can also... By the way, leave a rating and write a review. When you do that, it actually helps us out a whole lot, boosts us up in the Apple Podcast rankings. But there's another reason why you're going to want to do that, Caleb. Why is that? Because we will read your review on the podcast if you leave it. And if we get to 100, then I will embarrass myself. Why do you gotta say it like that? Say it with your chest, homie. Say it with your chest. You're gonna, you're gonna go and you're gonna read it in a funny voice. It's gonna be awesome. Yeah. Yep. Definitely gonna be awesome. See, this is why I can't work with this. <laughs> I can't. I need my. Anyway, agent. here's, here's uh, the review that we want to read from this week, and it's from Lindsay's Land. The title is awesome really great and thoughtful conversation learn something new about yourself others and the world every time boom thanks Lindsay. thank you and again if you want your review if you want to be on the air with us or at least have your review read leave us a rating and write a review in apple Podcasts. especially if you're a newer review we will re- we will definitely make sure to read it. But only if you give us five stars. Only if you give us five stars. And listen, you need to say something really nice about my my name I've given myself, the Todd Father. Yeah, if you mention the Todd Father in the review, um, it's definitely going to get mentioned. Mainly because I think Todd will make me. Yeah, because he hates that name and. It's just necessary at this point. Anyway, thank you so much for to listening to today's podcast. My name is Caleb Mason. My name is not Caleb Mason. It is Todd Hicksonball. And until next time, keep learning and keep growing. Peace.